Episode 68 of the Slowspin Side Podcast. My name is Paul, and joining me, as always, is Amanda. What's up, Hello. Amanda? What's up, what's up? Rob is sadly not with us today. He is doing some work stuff. Uh, maybe he'll join us, Mitchell. I don't know. We hope so. But in the, in the meantime, we are not alone today. We have a very, very special guest. Chaz, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, guys? How's welcome. it going? Uh, you probably know him uh, as the worldwide figure legend uh, that closed the 2015 MASH movie with, well, I would say an overwhelming amount of style uh, because at the time I was a kid, I looked at that movie and I was like, shit, this is exactly what I want to be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so you might know him uh, under the name tag at not jazz and uh again it's really nice to have you on the show uh speaking of really nice stuff if you want to hear more about jazz number 22 or the new chris king caller we talked a little bit about that in a very small pre-show you can access the extended conversation at patreon.com slash podcast but let's get into a show yeah let's go Again, Chaz, welcome to the show. Uh, I highly doubt there is anyone listening to this who don't know who you are. But if they don't, could you quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm Chaz Christensen. I live in Oakland, California. Uh, I lived in San Francisco for a really long time. Uh, and before that, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So I lived in Portland, Oregon, and I grew up in Washington. So kind of a West Coast kid uh, from America <laughs> that just got lucky enough to ride my bike around the world. Nice. Cool. Also from the West Coast, Montreal. Red, very cool. <laughs> Is it a big distance between Montreal and uh, Portland? Uh, well, I've yeah. I've been to Washington a couple of times. Okay, it's not that far. It's it's a big distance in terms of like North America, but in terms of the rest of the world, no, it's it's pretty close. So that's what, yeah, because for you guys, it's like oh, it's just an eight-hour drive, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> the American way. Like, oh, yeah, it's a big deal. We'll just drive for three days to get there. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. No problem. Um, so let's start off uh, from the very beginning. So how did uh, you get into fixed gear cycling? Oh, man. Um, I was living in Portland, Oregon, working as like a line cook at a restaurant. And uh, I got a cross bike. Uh, one of the guys that I worked with was like, oh, you should get this bike. I needed a bike. I got my driver's license taken away because I got too many speeding tickets. Um, <laughs> never got into an accident, but I, I like to speed a lot. So I did that when I was younger, which is dumb. Don't speed. And uh, got it taken away. So I was like, oh, I got to get a bike to get around. And so I went to a cross race, which in Portland is like a really big deal. It's called the Cross Crusade. It's like very kind of classic cross weather, tons of rain, tons of mud, huge turnouts. And there were these people that were riding the cross race on track bikes. Um, and it's funny to think about how big track lacrosse has gotten 
now, but I mean, they were just a bunch of bike messengers mm. that were riding these bikes that I just was like, what the fuck? Like you're skidding. You're like, everyone else is in skin this suits. So dope. Like, yeah. I mean, they were like, you know, cut off jeans and a t-shirt is pouring on rain. They're like slamming beers and just like hitting the jump and skidding everywhere. And fuck that yeah. was the first time I ever saw a track bike. Um, and I was like, people, someone was like, oh, they're bikes that don't ever coast. You have to pedal all the time. And I was like, that's insane. Uh, I want to do that to yourself. Give me, <laughs> take my money. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I didn't have any money. I was just like a you know, broke, broke line cook, you know, working in the service industry. Um, but a friend of mine who I actually keep in touch with still today, Arielle Raymond, she gave me, you know, what they call a suicide rear wheel, right? When it's the free hub or the free wheel, the old school free wheel type rear wheel. And you take a, a, a fixed cog and you thread it on and then you, there's no reverse threading. It's just one thread. And then you get some Loctite or something like that. And you use a bottom bracket lock ring and you like crank it all the way down and hope that it stays. It's what suicide. Wheel. I mean, that's how a lot of us back in the day did it. Like that's, that's how you got it. So ghetto. Yeah, it is. But at the time it's like, you know, track, track stuff was not around. This was like 2004, maybe 2005. Wow. And it wasn't, there wasn't like, there wasn't any internet really. There wasn't like, you couldn't just go to a shop and buy track bike stuff. Um, so I, that's, was what I wrote. I had a conversion, an old Peugeot, you know, like road frame conversion, super low bottom bracket, um, put way too big of a gear on it. I think I ran like a 51, 15. Um, <laughs> it, was like, it was bummed that I couldn't skid at first. You know, I just, I could not skid the bike and it turns out it's cause I was running like a yeah. track size gear. Um, and then eventually I got a real track rear wheel, but it was tubular because that's kind of all you could get at the time. Cause if you know, track bikes were tubular, um, so I carried around an extra tubular tire in Portland and went through like a tire a week because I love skidding. I finally learned how to skid. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't miss. and then, uh, you know, that's kind of when I found out about bike messengers. And I was like, you mean people get paid to ride, to their, ride bikes their bikes all day? I'm like, what? This is amazing. And I so I started racing alley cats. There was a, a bar called the Ash Street Saloon right in downtown Portland. It was like a messenger hangout. And I don't even remember how I found out about it, but I ended up showing up to a uh, some alley cats like street races you know and just loved it and then eventually from that got my first messenger job and then kind of just slid downhill from there to where Sweet. i am today and how old were you around <laughs> oh 20 let's see 22 23 mm -hmm. pretty young i didn't get my first messenger job until i was like 24 i think but i started riding track bikes when i was like 22 or 23 sweet so you went from track bike to messenger like real fast though yeah okay so now that i'm thinking about it so i um I had a, I ran a screen printing studio in a, like a basement of, of this house that I was living in. And I like made t-shirts for like bands and like local restaurants and like my own art. And I was at this bar one night drinking and I, this dude, I was talking about it with somebody and this guy like tapped me on the shoulder and was like, you, you can make t-shirts. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, can you make some right now? And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, and it was this guy named Lucky Pierre. Uh, I don't actually know Dave. I think Dave Stoops was his, was his name, but uh, he runs Black Star Bags, bike bike a bag company out of Portland, and he was helping to organize this big race called the West Side Invite, which was like a yearly bike messenger event that happened on the West Coast. And they basically had their screen printer guy had like bailed on the last second, and he needed to make all the shirts for the event, which started the next day. So we literally left the bar and went to the screen printing studio and like spent all night making these shirts. And then he was like, come to the race. Like I, at that point I had a track bike, I had a conversion. It wasn't even a real track bike. Um, and he was like, oh, you ride, you ride fixed, like come out to this event. And so that was, you know, 
back in the days when messenger events were huge, there was a couple hundred people, you know, just a weekend of like partying and racing and everything. And that's when I kind of like got my introduction to messenger culture. Um, and now that I remember, that's how I like heard about alley cats is they were like, yeah, this happens all the time. And I was like, what the fuck? Uh, and I saw all the original guys from MASH, like Rob Salimo was there and like a lot of the people that were in the original MASH crew from San Francisco, because um, this was in Portland, Oregon. So they just drove up and that was kind of what started, what kind of got me into it as I just went to this, I made some t-shirts and then went to this raging party and was like, fuck, this is sick. Nice. It usually, I mean, it usually the way it starts, right? It's yeah. some bikes, a big fat party. <laughs> just, a good community. Yeah, yeah, meeting some people. Well, I, I remember very vividly, Paps Blue Ribbon sponsored the event, right? And when you <laughs> registered for the event, everybody got a 24-pack of Paps. What? Like the huge, like case, like the big double case of Paps. Like now you got like your, you know, your registration packet, your race number, some stickers, and a 24-pack of Paps. Damn. And everybody had messenger bags. Everyone was everyone rolled around all weekend with a bag full of beer. So you can imagine it was just like a crazy time. And for somebody that had no experience with anything like that, I was super young. I was just like, this is the best of everything ever. Yeah. <laughs> everybody must have been slammed. Oh yeah. Rockstar, I don't know if you remember, but there's a thing called Rockstar 21. It was like Sparks, the alcoholic energy drinks. They also there was a like three cases of Pabst in this punk house where registration was, and there was a full pallet of Rockstar 21. So not only was everybody drinking Paps, but there was also like this really, really fucked up alcoholic energy drink there too. <laughs> so yeah, the weekend was, the weekend was crazy. Is that the energy drink with the, the star logo on it? Yeah, yeah, that oh, was that yeah. one. Yeah, we outlawed it because it was full of booze too. It was like uh, malt liquor too. So you, you know, if you drank like three of them, you'd be like blackout drunk, but also oh, like insanely active. It was, <laughs> it was a good time. I'm glad that they outlawed them. It definitely a lot yeah. of people got really sick. In, but... Back in, in Quebec, uh, there's it's four loco. That's it. It, yeah, it, it also was, got banned. Yeah. Yep, that's pretty much exactly <laughs> what it was. They're illegal so. now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, hey guys, let's put like an insane amount of alcohol and caffeine at the same place and let's see how people react to that. Of course, <laughs> it's not going to end well. No, I mean, it's a great time. <laughs> <laughs> so you went on with your first messenger job and then tcb happened there's, there's a little bit of a gap between those, yeah but yeah I, I was actually working as a, a butcher in portland i graduated from being a line cook to being a butcher wow um and i got my first messenger job and uh you know i just it was the greatest job ever i thought at the time i still think it's a good job but i did two winters in portland uh before i moved to san francisco and I moved to San Francisco just because it was like where you made money as a bike messenger. I was like, I'm going to go live in San Francisco for a year and then I'm going to move to New York because New York was the be all end all of bike messengers. Yeah, right? I went to Monster Track in 2008 was my first Monster Track. So I flew out there. I didn't know anybody. I just showed up to the race and like raced and was like, this is where I want to be. Um, and San Francisco was supposed to just be a stepping stone. Um, and I'm still here, you know, 15 years later, but uh and then I, when I was in San Francisco, I worked as a messenger for like a bunch of different companies for about two years. And I went to the Cycle Messenger World Championships in Tokyo uh, that year. And 2009? Been, 2009, yeah. yeah. And I had been to the Cycle Messenger World, or the European Cycle Messenger Championships in Berlin earlier that year. Uh, and so I just kind of met and talked to a lot of the larger bike messenger community. And from that, 
I essentially was like, someone's got to start a food delivery service. Like someone's got to start a messenger service that's just like a normal, like a, a carry anything service, not like a traditional paper messenger service. Mm-hmm. And it helped that when I got back from Tokyo, um, my dispatcher had said that he would hold my job for me. And when I got back from that trip, I was in Japan for two weeks. I got back and he was like, no, I gave your job to somebody else. So I didn't have a job. <laughs> wow. Um, and so TCB kind of just started from that. Like I had all these ideas in my head and then also all of a sudden I was unemployed. And so I was like, fuck, I'm just going to start a messenger company. Um, and that's kind of how TCB started. <laughs> all right. TCB started like that. How about MASH at that time? Were you involved in the crew? How, how did it work? Uh, it's funny. I actually thought MASH was really dumb at first. <laughs> and I hated it. When I was working in Portland... <laughs> Um, that's when the first MASH movie came out. And it was one of those things where I had, I had met a lot of the guys that were in it at various events, but I was like, this is some poser shit. Like who the fuck makes a movie about this? You know, real messengers just work all this stuff. And so I kind of thought it was a little dumb. And even when I moved to San Francisco, I was like, this is dumb. Like I just want to work and be a messenger and like real bike messengers don't, you know, would never video themselves and like do all this stuff. You just work. Um, and then, I don't even remember what year it was. I think maybe it was 2009, actually. Um, yeah, it was 2009. Mike Martin used to throw, Mike Martin, who uh, like runs MASH, used to throw this race called Breakers to Bay because there's this big marathon called Beta Breakers in the city of San Francisco where like thousands of people run this big running race through the city. So he would throw this race called Breakers to Bay, which was the opposite. It was an alley cat that you basically had to cross this marathon like three or four times you know, which was like insane. Thousands of people, everyone, it's a drinking race too. So everyone's drunk and wearing costumes. And oh, like, wow. Yeah, oh it my was, God. so remember when um, Mash and Schnelli first made those bikes, those, those first bolt frames, uh, the team got, Mash got, I think like six or seven of them as prototypes. And the, you know, the, some of the guys did the tour of California on them. Um, and one of those was the prize for the race. And I actually remember racing Rainier and he was on the, his bolt frame and I just wanted to beat Rainier um, so badly because we had been racing against each other for a couple of years in the Bay. And he was like my biggest competition. We were friends, you know, but it was like, I got to beat Rainier. Yeah, like rivals kind of stuff. Yeah, rivals. Yeah. And I, I beat Rainier at the race. I won the race. Um, and I, I had the time I was riding like a Cannondale track frame. I had like a 93 Cannondale track. And I was like, this is the fucking coolest bike ever. So I won the frame. And I was like, this frame is cool, but like, whatever. I'm going to fucking sell it. Like, I don't need this bike. I have you know, this fucking sick Cannondale. And, you know, I was like, whatever, this Chinelli bike. And so I actually took it to Japan with me. I built it up and took it to Japan because I was going to sell it in Japan because I was like, these are unreleased. This is like one of seven in the world right now. Like I'll definitely be able to sell it in Japan for like a ton of money, you know, and then I can come home and be like rich or whatever as a bike messenger. You know, a thousand dollars is like a lot of money. Um, Right before I left, Mike was like, hey, do you need any help? like with anything. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I don't know. Do you need like some help building it up? Do you need like a kit? Like, is there any way I can help you? And I was like, who the fuck is this dude that's like trying to help me? Like no one ever tries to help me, you know, no one ever tries to help bike messengers. Um, and he gave me a kit, which was the first kit I ever got. It was that the gray and black one where they had the little key printed on the side. Like they used to clip your keys to your belt and, um, Gabe Morford gave it to me. He's like, meet Gabe in front of deluxe. And for people that don't know, Gabe Morford is the filmer for MASH, a good friend of Mike Martin, but also like a legend in the skateboarding world. Like an absolute legend of skate photography, has been a professional skateboard photographer for like decades. 
And so I basically met Gabe in front of the deluxe skate shop in SF and he gave me a kit and I was like starstruck. I was like, holy fuck. Gabe Morford just met me and he was super cool. He's like, oh yeah, Mike says you're super chill. Like we're down to help you out and like support you. And I was just like, fuck, this is nuts. And so I didn't sell the frame in Japan and I, I kept it because I was like, oh, these guys are nice. And then yeah, it just kind of just went from there. Like, you know, MASH was never, I guess it maybe looks like a crew from the outside, but it wasn't ever like a thing that we were like, this is an exclusive club. It was just like me and like Rainier and Walton and Kyle, who I knew from Portland because they lived in Portland we all just kind of rode together and we all lived in the city and we were all young and like, we would just go on rides together, training rides or whatever. You know, we just go ride and Mike would be like, you guys want to film something? And he got support from brands. Dope. And so he'd be like, Hey, do you need like a crank set or do you need like a chain or like a saddle or bar tape or like, you know, whatever, or give us a kit a couple times a year. And it wasn't ever like a thing, you know, none of us ever got paid from it. And Mike certainly didn't make money off of us. You know, he just was trying to run mash and like, he just would stoke us out. And then eventually people started to want to fly us around the world. And that's when it kind of became like a little bit bigger of a thing, you know, a couple of years in. Damn. Wow. Well, but yeah, it was, just, it was just a bunch of friends hanging out. Yeah. Like it wasn't ever a serious thing until Red Hook, you know, like it wasn't until fixed gear criteriums really took mm -hmm. off that it became like a team. Cause for the, I don't know, like probably four or five years, it was just a bunch of us kids hanging out in San Francisco. Like right. So there's no like, real like actual vision at first. No, I mean, I think Mike just wanted to make cool things and he kind of structured it like the skateboarding model where he just wanted to make cool stuff. And like with Chinelli, he wanted to make cool stuff and Garrett Chow was there designing. And so it was just like, let's make cool stuff that mm -hmm. stokes people out, design cool bikes. And yeah, I mean, that was kind of it. And then opportunities have just kind of come and Mike's been really good about seizing them and then like passing down the benefits, you know, like you know, people think mash is a big, big thing. And it is, but like, you know, especially the original shop was like the size of a bedroom, you know, it was like Mike in the little tiny, like, you know, four meter by four meter square shop doing everything. And, you know, there wasn't ever like, a, there was never any like shipping and receiving or like big corporate stuff. It was just Mike, you know, in a tiny yeah. little shop fixing flat tires for commuters and trying to like make kits. <laughs> oh my God. I still know a shop like that. But yeah. Those are the best. It's cool. And it's funny because it definitely got really big on the internet and like, you know, it became a really big phenomenon, but it was always just like a really small thing, which I think is really funny. People, even now, there's a, the bigger mass shop, like the second shop, when people come, they're like, this is it? And you're like, yeah, dude, and this is big. Like, this is huge. The new shop is like massive. It's, you know, it's not really that big. It's the size of a normal bike shop. Mm -hmm. But I think people expect it to be way bigger than it is. When in yeah. reality, it's just like a handful of people that were just really motivated yeah. to do cool stuff. It's kind of like a bit, I guess you can say, like the, there's like a phenomenon when people go to Paris and like they expect it to be like so beautiful or like they have this vision and then like they're not. This and then they go to Paris. And, and they're, they're like, like that's the it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, totally. But I mean, I think that's it's cool because I mean, it, it is a big thing in the sense of like a lot of people really, it spoke to a lot of people and inspired a lot mm -hmm. of people um, for generations, you know, and got people riding bikes. And, you know, I think a lot of people, a track bike's super accessible. It's cheap, it's cheaper than most other bikes. It's fun. It's easy. And so a lot of people just started riding bikes because they saw like a MASH video on the internet or something, mm -hmm. which I think is rad. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Oh, and that's the connection. Mike was a professional photographer like a film photographer, like a commercial film photographer forever. So he had that training. And so that's why there was, I think a lot of it was Mike just enjoyed making good mm -hmm. art, like media, like photos, videos and all that stuff. 
and Gabe was a video was a skate videographer and a skate photographer forever. So a lot of it was their their passion was to like document stuff. And so a lot of it came from them just being able to make really cool media because that's what they did professionally. You know, it wasn't just like a bunch of people snapping photos. It was like they were pros. Yeah. So they made it look really good. It's the real deal type of thing. Yeah. But I don't think, again, it was never like a, there was never anything set out to be a vision, you know, mm -hmm. like the partnership with Shelly happened, you know, and that helped MASH get to the point where MASH could make its own frames and like all these things just kind of like happened and then it built off that. Yeah. Um, so even now, um, in 2022, people are still chipping over the MASH uh, Tinelli collab. Uh, everyone wants one and also frames, they tend to get higher and higher in the price. So could you tell us a bit more about the origin stories of that collaboration and how it ended uh, 10 years totally. later? Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure how it actually started because that was kind of before my time. Um, I think that... At the time, early 2000s, Cinelli was kind of having a hard time. You know, they were a really famous Italian brand. But if you look at a lot of the stuff they were making right around the early 2000s, it really wasn't that great. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm not, I don't know who reached out to who, but essentially, like when I came on, like the Mass Cinelli thing had just started. There was the Bolt, um, the Gray Bolt, and then it went really, really well. And then they were like, okay, we want to make more frames. We want to do more. And so they, Mike was like, yeah, sure. And he went basically to like me, Walton, Kyle, and Rainier. And Al Nelson was there who does a lot of the graphic design. And he was like, what do you guys want to make? You know, like, mm -hmm. what's up? And so at first, you know, the second generation Bolt, there was the histogram. And then we were doing a lot of like really stupid long rides, like riding down from San Francisco to LA on track bikes, like riding to Vegas on track bikes. So we were like, well, these water bottle holders. And originally the geometry was super tight. And so we were like, we need to make the geometry a little less tight, a little more comfortable for long rides, like all this stuff. And then I think the big, the big step was when I started racing Red Hook. Like I was the first person from MASH to go race Red Hooks. I went to the very first Red Hook that wasn't like unsanctioned basically. Cause it was, you know, just like a street race in Red Hook for like, I think three years I think it was the fourth one was when Dave Trimble got it to be like, you know, actually a sanctioned event with like barriers and yeah. like, you know, like a race. I went to that first one and I raced the histogram, which is a great bike, but certainly not a criterion bike. None of the bikes we were racing were criterion bikes. And so I started racing red hooks and I was like, this is fucking sick, but we need a better bike. And so the rest of the team kind of got on the bandwagon and we, they started racing red hooks And so Chinelli was like, well, what should we do? And I remember vividly, we were out racing the first Red Hook, the second Red Hook Milan. And they were like, come to the factory after the race and let's design the bike you guys want. So we literally, me, Walton, Rainier and Mike and Garrett Chow went to the Chinelli factory and we sat down for a whole day and we designed the parallax bike and It was, it was amazing because you got to tour the Chinelli factory and like do this, but they actually listened to us. And in my mind, like it was the coolest thing ever. They built the perfect bike. Wow. They built my dream bike, you know? Mm -hmm. And there was the two, the, the coolest thing about the whole relationship with Chinelli is they, you know, the bikes are made in, in Taiwan, but they, all the prototypes were made in Italy. And they had basically an Italian frame builder that would build all the prototypes and then send the prototypes directly from Italy to MASH where we would then test them. And so the first two parallax prototypes were the green bike that I had and Walton had a blue bike. Um, and we literally spray painted them in front of the mash door. Mike was out of town when they showed up. 
and like dad was out of town. So like we were at the shop <laughs> and we're like, we're like, fuck. We're like, Mike, can we paint him? And he's like, yeah, whatever. And so we like literally went and bought spray paint from the graffiti store around the corner and then like spray painted him in front of the shop and we tested him and then we gave him a bunch of feedback. And, you know, that's kind of how the parallax was born is that we were like, we want to create, we have track bike that's made for racing criteriums, you know, tapered head tube. It was one of the first production track bikes to have a tapered head tube, tapered carbon fork. Um, that was like a really big deal at the time. And so we kind of took that and designed a bunch of other bikes, like the single speed cyclocross bike was basically that same concept where we were like, we want to race cyclocross, but we want to keep it to like the roots, like single speed or fixed gear and, you know, kind of pre-track lacrosse. We didn't call it that. We rode our track bikes in the dirt all the time. But the idea was for the single speed cyclocross was to build a bike that was spaced for 120 millimeter track wheels so that some, you know, if you're broke, you could buy this bike and you could ride your normal track wheel set with cyclocross tires on it and have like a race bike as a single speed or a fixed gear or whatever. Um, and that, that just kind of worked with Chinelli for a long time. You know, the work bike, we were like, we want to build a steel bike. We want to make it accessible to everybody. You can race crits on it. You could work as a messenger. You could race alley cats. Like you could go touring on it. Um, and so it was a really good relationship for a long time, but you know, things got a little weird for me, especially when I designed the work frame, I was like, I want it to be priced at a certain price point and like, it needs to be cheap. You know, for bike messengers, it's a steel frame. It's not going to be as expensive as the other Chinellis. Um, and there was a verbal agreement with the people that run Chinelli about that. And so I designed the bike, you know, and that one went through three different prototypes. It took like a year plus to develop it and get it ready to go. There was a lot of stuff going on. And then when it was released, it was $1,000. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. that's not what we agreed on. And they were like, well, you know, we got to make money, yada, yada. And so that's mm -hmm. for me when I stepped away from Chinelli is because I kind of got disenfranchised. I was like, that's not, you know, it's not how you do business mm -hmm. with people that, you know, I never made any money off that. It was just like a passion for me. And I put a bunch of time and energy and experience into designing it. And so did everybody else. And then it was kind of like, for me, kind of a letdown that they would prioritize money over, you know, building a bike that's accessible for everybody. Um and then Mash left Chinelli about a year later, you know, and there's reasons behind that that I'm not going to get into because I'm not going to, you know, talk about Mash's business, but they were similar to my reasons in a way. Um, and I think also Mike wanted to make his own frames, you know, like yeah. working with Chinelli was a learning process. Um, and it is really challenging for a small company to make frames because, you know, big companies are ordering thousands of frames and mm -hmm. getting prototypes made and everything. But we learned about the prototyping process and kind of how to develop frames. And so... I think it was also just a good time for MASH to go its own way. Chinelli was, you know, doing a lot of stuff with Chinelli Chrome um, and having its own race team and kind of doing a lot of things around that. So I think it was just a good time for everyone to kind of part ways after we had learned kind of everything we needed to learn or everything we learned from them to develop frames. Yeah, I kind of remember vividly when Chinelli and MASH went their separate ways. And I think probably a year or a year and a half went by before Mike decided to release the AC1. And at first, everybody was like, hey, who's going to be the next collab? Like, everybody was sure that the next MASH was collab with some someone else, you know, not, not Sinelli, but it could have been, I don't know, like specialized or any big maker that was still making track bikes at the time. 
the offers were definitely there. I mean, people were interested, but I think the reason it took a year and a half is because that's reality how long it takes to prototype and get a bike to production. Like it's yeah. not, people think that these things happen quickly, but like it's definitely, you know, 18 months is a pretty decent, and that was actually really fast to get something from a prototype to um, get something from a prototype to production, you know, especially with the AC1, that was a full carbon fork that we designed specifically for that bike. So that's like, getting, getting a fork mold and everything made. And, you know, that kind of stuff takes a lot of time. And so there were a lot of offers from other brands, but I think Mike really wanted to do his own thing. You know, actually he was kind of willing to, to have it take a little while and, you know, do it right. Yeah. 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 I mean, just a little side note on, on the mash work. I remember, I don't know, maybe 2015, like when you wrote your work in Japan, I worked at the W base shop for a while. And I remember looking at the pictures that they took of your mash work was the set of four fours. I'm not even sure. Maybe it had like a rack at the time or something. And then probably, I don't know how many years later I got myself at work. And I made it, it's like, it's kind of my forever bike. Like it's still with me to this day. It's been repaired. Yeah. It's been through a lot. It is so rusty, but it's still there. And I remember really vividly at one point, I was like, man, this setup is the setup that I always wanted. And then it hit me. I was like, fuck, this is the exact same setup that I saw on that picture. <laughs> I've, I've been inception for like years and now it like it struck me and i was like fuck this is the exact same thing <laughs> i mean i trust me when i got when i started getting sponsored by zip that was like the biggest deal because that to me was what i was trying like we built the work bike because that's what we were like this is what we want you know straight blade we loved the rust i was like it was supposed to patina it's you know super thick steel tubing so like you never it's never going to break you know, that was like the point. So when I had that bike in Japan for that trip, with the exception of the brakes, because I put those on to try and be lawful, yep. which is weird. But everything else that was like, that's literally the bike. That's like, this is my, this is my forever bike, my perfect bike, you know? So that's, that's good to hear because all of the mash frames that we developed are because we were like, what, what would we want to ride? Like, what would be our perfect bike? And then, you know, it takes a while to get it out there, but eventually, you know, something like that finally comes up and it's, the perfect bike <laughs> yeah that's a yeah it's a good ride the side note that i have is so all the bike frames are made in italy all the, the prototypes mm -hmm. and i have managed to keep every prototype that uh mash has ever done that i've ever worked on mm -hmm. so i have every prototype from and even so the first bolts that we got the first seven bolts those were prototypes and then they have paper stickers under a clear coat and most of the bikes that were prototyped have paper stickers or they're, you know, they're not, it's not painted. They're just like paint yeah. samples or things like that. And like, like the, my histogram prototype has an upside down top tube because we were still messing with the geometry. And it's kind of a cool thing because at some point I'm going to do like a show. Me and Mike have talked about it for a long time, like a retrospective where we bring all the prototypes back out. Um, Cause it is like a really nice kind of, walk down memory lane. Uh, and I think it's cool personally, because they're all, you know, Chinelli is a good brand. They're definitely made in Taiwan. The, the Taiwanese factories make great bikes. You know, the mash bikes are made in Taiwan now, but I actually have, you know, made in, made in Italy, handmade Chinelli's 
uh, for all the mash prototypes. I think there's probably like maybe nine or 10 bike prototype bikes that I have. They're all beat up, you know, they've all been ridden to the ground, uh, but they're still there and they're still made in Italy, mm. which I think is cool. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty sick. <laughs> Not gonna <laughs> lie, it's pretty sick. Um, like I was telling you in my email, I think you and the rest of the MASH crew inspired a lot of people. And I was wondering, uh, what do you think about the fixed gear scene and the fixed gear culture as today in 2022? Like we've seen that it's kind of starting again. A lot of people are picking up track bikes again and going into the streets. What do you think about it? Oh, I think it's amazing. I mean... I just love people getting out on bikes and I think track bikes is definitely a gateway drug. If you look at most of the people that are my age that now are into like gravel and like, you know, all this different stuff, like almost all of them, if you ask them what their first bike was, they're like, oh, it's a track bike, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that I hope that all the people that are out today will continue to ride bikes. I'm a little jealous because I can't really do a lot of the stuff that everyone's into now, which is like all the wheelies and like, <laughs> you know, all the tricks, which... I wish I could, like, I think old dog, new tricks. Like I'm just, I'm not going to try and learn how to like bunny hop a five stair or like do all the crazy stuff that mm -hmm. everyone's doing on bikes now. Um, I'm really good at going really fast in traffic and bombing big hills. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my jam and I'm okay with that. But I think that it's, I think it's sick because it's, so when I was the last kind of big track bike boom, so to say, you know, maybe 10 years ago yep. like when fixed gear freestyle really came around, fixed gear freestyle was cool back then, but it was always it was just slow. It, you know, didn't, it was, nobody was going very fast. It was like really jerky. If you looked at it compared to like BMX, it wasn't smooth. It's cool that you were doing it on a track bike, but like it didn't look very visually appealing. Like if you were into it you were like, man, that's really technical and challenging. And like, that's a crazy trick, but it didn't look good. Yeah. And now I think it's that, but everyone's fucking going so fast and I'm like so stoked mm -hmm. on all the people, like the videos that are coming out of people, you know, like Jake, Jay Glanick's a great example of just like wheeling, wheeling, doing like 25 miles wheeling through traffic mm. and like bunny hopping up curbs and like hopping down stair sets. And like, to me, I love that that evolution, I thought fixed gear freestyle was going to go away. And it kind of did. There was like a handful of people that kept the dream alive, you know, and now it's kind of back. And that's what a lot of people are into, which I'm stoked on because man, there's nothing crazier than seeing a group of like 12 people flying on down <laughs> track bikes and traffic wheeling and jumping curbs and, you know, just like, kind of stuff that we never did when I was growing up or coming up into it. It was always like just about the speed. We got into criteriums, you know, and it was really about like almost like road race style training, road race tactics on track bikes, like, you know, fixed 42 in Berlin. Yeah. That's, that was that's more of like my type of style of writing. <laughs> I'd say. Yeah, me too. Like that's yeah. where I come from. It's like, that's just, you know, and I think oh, there's not a lot of interest. I, people are always like, Oh, bring a red hook back. And it's like, I you know, wish. I think if you brought <laughs> People, I don't think people would be as into it oh. just because the the current crew that's the current group of people that are like on track bikes in the streets, it's way more like trick focused. Like I'm saying, mm. bring back Red Bull riding style. You know, I think something like that would be way bigger with the current crowd. And maybe it'll, you know, transform more to speed and like putting on a skin suit and going out and doing training rides so that you can be fast in a criterion. But, mm. you know, I think that a lot of the stuff now is more about like, kind of street riding at speed, which I'm, I'm super into. So like, I'm very stoked on where track bikes are right now. And it may not be what I'm good at, but that doesn't mean that I can't mm -hmm. be stoked on it. Yeah. Amanda, do you know when exactly is the next, uh, 
a fixed 42? Uh, when exactly? Well, because I work for Radways. I just moved to Hamburg. Chas, if you don't know, anyways, a uh, little background. And I think, I know that Last Man, Last Woman Standing is the 23rd of March. Uh, okay. And Fixed 42, I think it's it's in the summer. Yeah, it usually is in like peak summertime. Because yeah. it's whenever that big festival in Berlin happens. Because they like do it in conjunction mm -hmm. with that big bike festival. Yeah. I, I think stuff like Last Woman, Last Man Standing, and like the, we just did the, with the Mission Crit, we did the Red Bull mm -hmm. short circuit. I think stuff like that is kind of where a lot of the direction is going, mm. where it's, you know, not as, it's a lot, like, it's kind of like a small criterion, but you don't have to be as physically fit. Like Red Hook, when Red Hook was ended, ending, the, pro, the pros were racing. So the level of fitness, you mm -hmm. had to basically be training full time to be able to compete mm -hmm. at a Red Hook, you know, yeah. and be, be do really good. And so I think stuff like the short circuit and the last last woman standing, last man standing is more accessible because it's more about, you have to be fast, but it's more about bike handling yeah. and like taking risk and like just being good at riding a track bike rather than being like, I can put out 400 watts, mm. you know, for an hour. Well, definitely I can say, uh, Chaz, like I'm a young fixed gear rider, I guess you can say from the younger generation. Um, I've been riding, I started riding fixed gear when I was 18 been riding it for like four years now and from Montreal and my group of friends and everyone we all ride uh, like fixed gear pretty hard in the streets but there's no um trick scene and but every summer we organize uh, pretty big um crits fixed gear crits in uh, like a parking lot and everything well, I've, yeah I've heard of the ones in Montreal that's is it it's not part of the I not I was it I bike I bike exactly I'm, I was on that team yeah and I just yeah no that's, that's right. yeah I'm on the iBike team and I just moved to Hamburg to be on the Rad Race team, yeah. Excellent. So. Well, that stokes me out to hear because I you know I definitely like I'm looking more of like a West Coast like New York like kind of American vibe. So it, it I love it that that's still a big thing because to me that's my roots. Like I yeah. came from racing Criterions and racing Alley Cats and like going fast and mm -hmm. you know that to me is what stokes me out so i love to hear that people are yeah. still and also before that. i correct my mistake i said um as well east coast i thought you were meant, meant uh, washington dc so i was like hey yeah. what's up me too i was like oh oops no you're on the west yeah, coast <laughs> my bad about so, that i mean <laughs> Was like, is it on a lake? Like, I was like, is it? Is it, is it no, no, like no. I'm on the lake? other side, <laughs> East Coast. Anyway. I didn't want to say anything, but I, went, yeah, I was like, no. wait, that's not really. The <laughs> I thought you meant Washington, D.C. I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're on the west side of the river. <laughs> you know, Montreal's on the west side of the St. Lawrence yeah. River. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, for me, crits, I like, I like looking at it, but I'm just. Mm, I'm no <laughs> way too bad Chris I'm just not fast enough I like like riding in the city I like hanging out with friends uh that's all right that's all and right. I've done oh, I've really done good. my fair share of alley cats and even if I wasn't that good at it I, I still love doing yeah. it but like the crits oh my god you you need to be so good at it mm. yeah especially now like when I started it wasn't such a specialized thing. And so like, I feel like I was that generation that was able to get good at crits while racing crits, where now if you want to race crits, you have to just already be good because everyone is already at like such a yeah, high Yeah, you level, really you have know? to train. Yeah. Yeah, you have to train, which I mean, don't get me wrong. I love training, yeah. but man, it yeah, can I'm get guessing a you know Raphael Lemire. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, I I raced with her this uh, this summer at a, in a in a fixed crit. She is gnarly. Yeah. Didn't didn't she just have a kid? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like a couple of months ago, and I also did a gravel race uh, with her, and like, right, she came first place, and like ten minutes later, she's just there with her kid and like feeding her child, <laughs> breastfeeding her child after winning first place in a gravel race. Like no no stress. No, <laughs> she's a badass. That was always my favorite thing about her is that she would win like red hooks and she was just so chill about it she was just like yeah, yeah you know like whatever it's just i won it's yeah, not a big deal like some people that was like the be all end all of their existence that she was just like yeah it's racing bikes whatever yeah, it's and she, yeah. <laughs> also um i do a lot of the downhill riding and she also lives at the same mountain that i like she ne- lives near the mountain that the downhill mountain always shredding downhill like all day crazy that's gnarly yeah. see that's what i'm I'm not good at mountain biking. I've gotten a mountain bike as of late and I've been riding a lot, but I'm terrified of it, especially downhill. Like I do, oh. I transition a lot to like ultra endurance racing. And I've, since the pandemic, I've kind of got into like mountain bike ultra endurance racing. So that's what I use my like mountain Enduro? bike for, but no, like um, self-supported ultra endurance. So mm. like I just did okay, like a ultra long. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So like for me, that's what I use it for. But if like I've gone trail riding before and like downhill and I am, so scared i'm so bad at it i, I can't it. relax uh, it's funny. i, I think it's the thing if you're <laughs> see, if, you put, like, if you put me on a track bike in new york city traffic i am like so chill like i'm in my element you know everything is like it's perfect but then I'm, i get on a mountain that's... bike and i like can't get off the brakes i'm like super that's tense crazy I'm, like, yeah. wow. it's it's wild i'm trying to get better at it but like mountain biking scares me uh, not 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 gonna lie it's like it's it's really scary uh, I mean, the fact that you come from track bikes and then you put yourself onto uh, onto like a fully front and rear suspension mountain bike that's fill, hey, that's that feels what all I do. mushy. No, I don't. But for someone that comes from track bikes yeah. and then you go onto something that is so mm. I, w- I wouldn't say unprecise uh, but compared like, to a track yeah. bike. But, yeah, very. And I just got. I- just got a full suspension i haven't even built it up yet like i've been on a hard tail this whole time because full suspension scares me but i mean (laughs) i'm also i'm also substantially older than you guys are so the injury thing is a lot more like when you're almost 40 and you you hurt yourself it takes so much longer to bounce back if i was in my 20s i would i did just bounce all the time you know like i i had no fear so i think that's a lot of it is i'm just i basically i still like kind of race bikes for a living or ride bikes for a living Mm. so for me, like a lot of it is like I need to make sure that I can still kind of do my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't go break a bunch of bones downhill mountain biking because then I wouldn't be able to pay the bills, support the family. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talking about bikes then, uh, it is traditional question here on the show, but do you have any track frame that you own or not that just hits different? Something that is truly close to your heart, something that you truly... Uh, like e- either if you own it or not, you really want it, or you just want to keep it forever. Uh, is there is there the one somewhere out there? The one for me would be the prototype parallax frames. The first prototype parallax frames. If you remember the first Red Hook Barcelona when the Mash team showed up, and I think it was the first time that a team had shown up with like matching bikes, matching kit, matching helmet, matching shoes. It's the white parallax frame mm. um, with black, you know, the black artwork on it. 
the ones that the mash team had were prototypes paint samples and they have the a tighter fork rake than all the other parallaxes by two degrees and a slightly steeper seat tube as well so they are there was only five of them ever built um dylan buffington rode his uh in japan i think but also for the for the 2015 mash video um and that bike is just really special the geometry is is really crazy uh, it's super, super aggressive for being a Criterion frame. It's way more like a street track bike. Um, and the decals are paper. You can actually feel the decals under like a super thin clear coat. And it just kind of represents a time and a place for me too. It's kind of when the te- when we really became a team and it became more than just like a group of friends, you know, just hanging out or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'd say that the my my Parallax prototype is probably the one bike I have that every time I get on it, it hits a little different. Is that is that the one that you had to argue with Sinelli for a big amount of time for like half a degree on the on the C2? Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. And they didn't even and that's those are the ones that they made the way we wanted and then they made the production ones the way they wanted. Oh my god, they're so Italian. They're kind of like, they're kind of like team edition bikes. I mean, they were right though cuz it's super aggressive. It's almost too aggressive if you're not that's not what you specifically want. Um, and especially now, whenever I go ride it again, it's like super, super aggressive. Like I look at it and I'm like, how did I ever raise criteriums on this? But riding it in the streets is amazing. So I still ride it in the street all the time. <laughs> yeah, because the the already, let's say, actual parallax is already considered as a really, really aggressive frame by all standards. Yeah. And this is a super aggressive version of that. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it definitely it definitely hits a little different. Also, ninety three Cannondale track frame, that's like I've had that bike forever, and that bike is also hits different. It's really uncomfortable to ride, and I, I can't believe that I rode it for so long. <laughs> Do you know that your original one is in France? Uh, the one that I drew on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I talked to the dude. Um, I think it's Vincent ninety three. I think is his IG handle. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Although that one wasn't my original. The one I have is my original. Oh. That's okay. one that I. I got it's actually a 58 it's a size too big for me um and it it had a dent in it but i would have ridden but i drew on it because it was like kind of dented and I, when i sold it to him i was like this is not a bike to be ridden if you want to ride it ride it but it definitely has a big old dent in the top too just so you know just so you know <laughs> i mean i i'm kind of bad about that i will definitely ride bikes that are kind of a little bit broken um but that's just me you can't you can't assume that everyone else is going to do that i mean on an in, in an aluminum frame, it's kind of, uh, you know, a little bit scary, but I have like a big old dent in my San Rancho, but I still love it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, if you have a Kieran frame that doesn't have a dent in it, do you really have a Kieran frame? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> and speaking of bikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice transition. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, what ratio do you ride in San Francisco? You've probably been asked this many times before. <laughs> I have, but it's okay. It's still a good question. Um, when I started out, I rode a 4817 which was a little big, yeah. but that's just what I had. Yeah. I had a 48 Zen chainring. Mm. Um, for a long time, I rode a 4416, which is super weird. And I don't really know why, remember why I did that. <laughs> but, uh, I kind of eventually landed on a 4717. I got a 44 RN chainring. I uh, won it as a prize in like 2010. It was like the first, one of the first batches he ever made. Uh, and so I got a, it was a 47. 
And then I just stopped. I just stopped writing anything else but that <laughs> since then. Been riding 44 RN since then, and it's a 47 17 for San Francisco, and then 49 14 for crits. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, me too. 43 18 for uh, track lacrosse. Sweet. Yeah, I ride 49 14 for, for crits as well. But crazy to, to go up those hills with the 17. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That's it is. And now when I do it, my knees hurt. I have really bad knees from doing it. <laughs> It's not even the going up, it's the going down. But I I got into like kind of racing and I, I did really well. And I, I always thought about like, I never trained, you know, I was just a bike messenger. Mm -hmm. I just worked and drank a lot and partied and like slept very little and ate pizza and donuts. And I always wonder like, how did that, I don't think I'm specifically that talented at riding bikes. I think That's not true. I just rode a track bike with a 47, 17 or like a big ratio in San Francisco for like so long that I just got really strong. Mm -hmm from that <laughs> no. and that was like my dirty secret is i was just like oh i don't do intervals i don't train i just like go climb california street with like 20 pounds on my back like twice a day on the track bike yeah i mean that sounds like a good training yeah it isn't it isn't my body's pretty fucked right now. later on, later on <laughs> yeah, bike messaging is a great job but eventually i mean it wears on your body pretty hard sure. so i definitely I'm, i'm paying for it now as i'm older yeah. I do a ton of like yoga and strength training and like stretching and all that to keep keep everything moving. Yeah, Amanda, dropping your ratio wasn't a bad thing after all. Um, huh? yeah, exactly. But you know, I had the I okay, so I rode forty nine fourteen for a while in the city and because I just in in track, um, and then I told the guys the other like a couple of weeks ago I changed my cog for the first time to an eighteen. That didn't last long. <laughs> That really? like it, it lasted like 24 hours and i was like nope i'm spinning way too much and i changed to 16 <laughs> i didn't oh, tell you guys did though because <laughs> like i love spinning like the i i to me that that's how like that's how i love it but oh i know a lot of people that oh, don't no. like one of my really good friends chris thorman who have raced alley cats with forever um he loves riding a big gear you know and that's just kind of his jam and that's just like people there's all, the only right answer is whatever works for yeah. you right Oof, spinning especially with an 18 i was like ho 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 no 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 <laughs> it changed to a 16 <laughs> yeah 49 16 is pretty good that's actually chris would always ride a 49 16 yeah. so we would race alley cats and he would always be like spinning super mm -hmm. slow and i'd be on a 47 17 spinning super fast yeah. mm. but we would beat each other you know like we would each win like half the time so it wasn't like one was better than the other mm. it's just whatever you're good yeah. at or whatever feels good to True. you um What do you say like soon that uh, maybe there's a specific city that you're eager to ride in or is there a city in general that you've never ridden in before and you'd like to try it out? Yeah, I mean, I this may not be a popular answer and like I don't actually want to go to Russia, but I've really <laughs> heard that riding in Russia is insane. Um, I had some, you know, Terry Berenson and uh, Tony went with our friend Krusha like kind of right before the pandemic and they said it was really fucking cool um and the community was great and they had like they raced a bunch of alley cats and like they said the traffic was amazing so like i don't actually want to go to russia for the obvious reasons but i would love to be able to go ride in russia and like mm. meet the people and ride i don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon mm. but i've heard that that's a great place to ride um other than that i always loved riding in indonesia uh jakarta was probably one of the craziest places i've ever ridden a bike Um, so shout out to Jakarta and all the people that ride, ride bikes in Indonesia, um, and Malaysia as well. Guadalupe is a really crazy place. So I wouldn't mind going back someplace in Southeast Asia 
Like maybe riding in Bangkok would be like nuts. Oh my god, that sound that sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah, that's the best part. It's like there's no rules. Oh you can literally god. do whatever you want. And so as long as you like, you know, you, yeah, there's no rules. It's just I you just can't. go. I love it. Because <laughs> essentially, when I ride in the states or in any European city, it's like you're just trying not to get caught breaking the rules. And so you're always like, oh, I want to do this, but I won't because mm. maybe there's a police officer or whatever. But like. In Southeast Asian cities, I found that like, you know, it's like a, it's like a big school of fish. Everyone just does their own thing and you're not bothering anybody by like, there's not even any red lights, you know, there's no traffic signals of any sort. So it's not even like you're breaking the law. Yeah. You just, you just go and do whatever you need to do. Yeah, I've been in just Hamburg. There. I've been in Hamburg now for one month and I ran from the police uh, twice on my bike. Yeah. The German police are not stoked on track bikes. Yeah. I have been chased in Berlin and Dusseldorf and Frankfurt so many times by the German police. Yeah. But it's fun to race in German <laughs> City. I think German alley cats are a really good time. Yeah. Yeah. I still I still need to go to Germany to hang out a little bit, but it's gonna happen. Yeah. It's gonna happen. Uh all right. Manda, any any last question? Um do you have any uh upcoming travel plans or any projects? Oh man, I I was kind of on the road all year this year. Um I usually this year I was I was gone 3 weeks out of every month. So <laughs> uh travel's kind of actually done, which is nice. I I'm just going to hang out around some yoga. Yeah, well actually going a lot of going a lot of bike packing trips. That's kind of I know it's not super track bike friendly, but like I've gotten really into bike packing and uh that's kind of where I like if I have a choice what I would what I would go do um I am going to go do my buddy Alvin from the Endo Concept team in LA is throwing something called the Circle of Doom uh, in two weeks. That sounds which is great. This, it sounds <laughs> great. It's this crazy route through the mountains of uh, outside of Los Angeles um, that I'm going to go do, but uh, not anything for the rest of the year. I'm going to go to Morocco in February for this race called the Atlas Mountain Race, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, but I think there's definitely going to be a lot of travel in 2023. I just don't have any plans for it yet. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess that wraps up another episode of the Slow Spin Society podcast. Uh, Chaz, one last question before we do the outro is, who would you like to hear on this podcast? Oh, man. Aaron from 44RN. That dude is super interesting. He makes the best chain rings I've ever ridden in my life. But he also makes crazy glasses. He just does a lot of really cool stuff. Um, or Sean Wolf from King Cog. Right. Well, Aaron Pannoni, you heard that. You're either coming back or it's Sean. Oh, you've already had Aaron. We, I had, we had him, but at the very, very beginning, I think in like episode six or something. So it was more than two years ago. I'll have to dig up his episode then. That would be a good one. Um, I would also say that uh, Sean Martin from Endo Concept lives down in LA. Mm -hmm. He has been part of the track bike scene for a really, 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 really long time. And uh, I think he would be an interesting person to talk to as well. Sounds great. Sweet. 
All right. All right, guys. Everything we discussed today will be in the show notes on the blog, slowspinsidey.com, along with the various articles and write-ups I post every two weeks. Of course, in the show notes this uh, this show, you'll find uh, links to some of Chaz's prototypes, etc., uh, his socials, everything, basically. Again, the Slowspin Society is proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you get value out of the show, why not consider putting some value back in? You can visit patreon.com slash Podcast to join the community. We're pledging at any level. We'll grant you access to the extended cut of the show. Special thanks goes to our 38 Patreon supporters, uh, making this show possible and ad-free. We love you guys. You can also find us on our Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes. Always our Instagram account, at Society. Amanda is at, at Amanda C. Berger. I go by at underscore pull underscore you. Rob is at Kenzie.co. Chaz, where can people find you online? At not Chaz. <laughs> it's just <laughs> at not Chaz and maybe Chaz for the, for the email. Yeah, not really Chaz if you want to email me. Also, notchaz.com has write-ups about almost all the bikes that I talked about. So if you were stoked on any of the bikes that I talked about, all the prototypes in Chinelli, the number 22, um, I've done pretty extensive write-ups on most of the bikes that I talked about. So you can look at photos and read a bunch of stuff about those bikes. Awesome. Well, guys, sharing the podcast with your friend is by far the best and easiest way to support the show by giving us a good review on the platform of choice. As usual, the music for the show is Lovely Swindler by Maria, and the illustration is by me. We're going to go on to a quick after show, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Later. Later.